Chapter Nine, Part One of the Shades of the Wilderness. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Shades of Wilderness by Joseph A. Altschiller. Chapter Nine, In Society, Part One. Harry, when the dawn had fully come, was sent farther away toward the ford to see if the remainder of the troops had passed, and when he returned with the welcome news, the rain had ceased to fall. The army was rapidly drying itself in the brilliant sunshine, and marched leisurely on. He felt an immense relief. He knew that a great crisis had been passed, and if the northern armies ever reached Richmond, it would be a long and sanguinary road. Meade might get across and attack, but his advantage was gone. The same spirit of relief pervaded the ranks, and the men sang their battle songs. There had been some fighting at one or two of the fords, but it didn't amount to much, and no enemy hung on their rear. But no stop was made by the staff until noon, when a fire was made and food was cooked. Then Harry was notified that he and Dalton were to ride that night with dispatches for Richmond. They were to ride through dangerous country until they reached a point on the railroad, wholly within the southern lines, when they would take a train for the Confederate capital. They were glad to go. They felt sure that no great battles would be fought while they were gone. Neither army seemed to be in a mood for further fighting just yet, and they longed for a sight of the little city that was the heart of the Confederacy. They were tired of the rifle and march of cannon and battles. They wished to be a while where civilized life went on, to hear the bells of churches, and to see the faces of women. It seemed to them both that they had lived almost all their lives in war. Even Jeb Stuart's ball, stopped by the opening guns of a great battle, was far, far away, and to Harry it was at least a century since he had closed his Tacitus in the Pendleton Academy and put it away in his desk. That old Roman had written something of battles, but they were no such struggles as Chancellorsville and Gettysburg had been. The legions, he admitted in his youthful pride, could fight well, but they never could have beaten a Yank or Reb. He and Dalton slept through the afternoon, and directly after dark, well-equipped and well-armed, they made their start into the south. But in going, they did not neglect to pass the camp of the Invincibles, who were now in the apex of the army, farthest south. They had found an unusually comfortable place, on a grassy plot besides a fine cool spring, and most of them were lying down. But Colonel Talbot, and Lieutenant Colonel Hector St. Hilaire sat on empty kegs with a board on an empty box between them. The great game which ran along with the war had been renewed. St. Clair and Langdon sat on the grass beside them, watching the contest. The two colonels looked up at the sound of hooves and paused a moment. "'I'm getting his king into a close corner, Harry,' said Colonel Talbot, "'and he'll need a lot of time for thinking. Where are you two going?' or perhaps I shouldn't ask you such a question. There's no secret about it, replied Harry. We're going to Richmond with dispatches. He was incorrect in saying that he was getting my king into a close corner, as I'll presently show him, said Lieutenant Colonel St. Hilaire. But you boys are lucky. I suppose you'll stay a while in the capital. 
You'll sleep in white beds. You'll eat at tables with tablecloths on them. You'll hear the soft voices of the women and girls of the South. God bless them. And if you went on to Charleston, you'd find just as fine women there, said Colonel Leonidas Talbot. He sighed, and a shade of sadness crossed his face. Harry heard and saw and understood. He remembered a night long, long ago in that heat of rebellion when he had looked down from the window of his room and in the dark had seen two figures, a man and a woman, upon a piazza, Colonel Talbot and Madame Delaunay, talking softly together. He had felt then that he was touching almost unconsciously upon the thread of an old romance, a thread slender and delicate, but yet strong enough in its very tenderness and delicacy to hold them both. The perfume of the flowers and of the old romance that night in the town so far away came back He was moved and when his eyes met Colonel Talbot's some kind of an understanding passed between them The good are never rewarded said happy Tom how so asked Harry Because the proof of it sits on his horse here before us Why should a man like George Dalton be sent to Richmond? A sour Puritan who does not know how to enjoy a dance or anything else who looks upon the beautiful face of a girl as a sin and an abomination Who thinks to be ugly is to be good who is by temperament and education? Unfit to enjoy anything While Thomas Langdon who by the same measurements is fit to enjoy everything is left here to hold back the army of the Potomac it is undoubtedly a tribute to my valor but I don't like it Thomas said Colonel Leonidas Talbot gravely you're entirely too severe with our worthy young friend Dalton The bubbles of pleasure always lie beneath austere and solemn exteriors like his Seeking to break away to the surface the longer the process is delayed the more numerous the bubbles are and the greater they expand if scandalous reports concerning a certain young man in Richmond should reach us here in the north Relating to his unparalleled exploits in the giddier circles of our gay capital I should know without the telling that it was our prim young George Dalton You never spoke truer words Leonidas said lieutenant colonel Hector st. Hilaire a little judicious gallantry in youth is good for anyone It keeps the temperature from going too high. I recall now the case of Auguste Champigny who owned an estate in Louisiana near the Louisiana state of the st. Hilaire's and the estates of those cousins of mine whom I visited as I told you once But pardon me I digress and to digress is to grow old So I will not digress but remain young in heart at least I go back now I was speaking of Auguste Champigny who in youth thought only of making money and of making his plantation already great many times greater the blood in his veins was old at twenty-two he did not love the vices that the world calls such but yet there were times i knew when he would have longed to go with the young because youth cannot be crushed wholly at twenty-two there was no escape of the spirits no wholesome bloodletting so to speak and that which was within him became corrupt he acquired riches and more riches and land and more land and at fifty he went to New Orleans and sought the places where pleasures abound But his true blossoming time had passed the blood in his veins now became poison He did the things that 20 should do and left undone the things that 50 should do 
ah harry one of the saddest things in life is the dissipated boy of fifty he should have come with us when the first blood of youth was upon him he could have found time then for play as well as work he could have rowed with us in the slender boats on the river and bayous with mimi and rosalie and marianne and all those other bright and happy ones he could have danced too it was no strain we never danced longer than two days and two nights without stopping and the festivals the gay fete days not more than one a week but it was not august's way a man when he should have been a boy and then alas a boy when he should have been a man you speak true words hector said colonel leonidas talbot though at times you seem to me to be rather sentimental youth is youth and it has the pleasures of youth it is not fitting that a man should be a boy but middle age has pleasures of its own and they are more solid perhaps more satisfying than those of youth i cannot conceive of twenty getting the pleasure out of the noble game of chess that we do the most brilliant of your young french creole dancers never felt the thrill that i feel when the last move is made and i beat you then if you expect to experience that thrill leonidas continue the pursuit of my king from which you expect so much and see what will happen to you colonel talbot looked keenly at the board and alarm appeared on his face he made a rapid retreat with one of his pieces and harry and dalton knowing that it was time for them to go reached down from their saddles shook hands with both then with st clair and happy tom and were soon beyond the bounds of the camp they rode on for many hours in silence they were in a friendly land now but they knew that it was well to be careful as federal scouts and cavalry nevertheless might be encountered at any moment two or three times they turned aside from the road to let detachments of horsemen pass they could not tell in the dark and from their hiding places to which army they belonged and they were not willing to take the delay necessary to find out they merely let them ride by and resumed their own place on the road harry told dalton many more details of his perilous journey from the river to the camp of the commander-in-chief and he spoke particularly of shepherd although he's a spy he said i feel that the word scarcely fits him he's so much greater than the ordinary spy that man is worth more than a brigade of veterans to the north he's as brave as a lion and his craft and cunning are almost superhuman he did not tell that he might easily have put shepherd forever out of the way but that his heart had failed him yet he did not feel remorse nor any sense of treachery to his cause he would do the same were the same chance to come again but it seemed to him now that a duel had begun between shepherd and himself they had been drifting into it either through chance or fate for a long time he knew that he had a most formidable antagonist but he felt a certain elation in matching himself against one so strong they rode all night and the next day across the strip of maryland into virginia and once more were among their own people their undoubted own they were now entering the valley of virginia where the great jackson had leaped into fame and both harry and dalton felt their hearts warm at the greetings they received both armies had marched over the valley again and again it was torn and scarred by battle and it was destined to be torn and scarred many times more but its loyalty to the south stood every test 
This, too, was the region in which many of the great Virginia leaders were born, and it rejoiced in the valor of its sons. Food and refreshment were offered everywhere to the two young horsemen, and the women and the old men, not many young men were left, wanted to hear of Gettysburg. They would not accept it as a defeat. It was merely a delay, they said. General Lee would march north once more next year. Harry knew in his heart that the South would never invade again, that the war would be, for her, henceforth a purely defensive one. But he said nothing. He could not discourage people who were so sanguine. Every foot of the way now brought back memories of Jackson. He saw many familiar places, fields of battle, sites of camps, lines of advance or retreat, and his heart grew sad within him, because one whom he admired so much, and for whom he had such a strong affection, was gone forever, gone when he was needed most. He saw again, with all the vividness of reality, that terrible night at Chancellorsville, when the wounded Jackson lay in the road, his young officers covering his body with their own to protect him from the shells. When they reached the strip of railroad entering Richmond, they left their horses to be sent later, and each took a full seat in the short train where he could loosen his belt and stretch his limbs. It was a crude coach by the standards of today, but it was a luxury then. Harry and Dalton enjoyed it after so much riding horseback and watched the pleasant landscape brown now from the July sun flow past. Their coach did not contain many passengers, several wounded officers going to Richmond on furlough, some countrymen carrying provisions to the capital for sale, and a small, thin, elderly woman in a black dress to whom Harry assigned the part of an old maid. He noticed that her features were fine, and she had the appearance of one who had suffered. When they reached Richmond and their passes were examined, he hastened to carry her bag for her and to help her off the train. She thanked him with a smile that made her almost handsome, and quickly disappeared in the streets of the city. A nice-looking old maid, he said to Dalton. How do you know she's an old maid? I don't know. I suppose it's a certain primness of manner. You can't judge by appearances. Like as not, she's been married thirty years, and it's possible she may have a family of at least twelve children. At any rate, we'll never know. But it's good, George, to be here in Richmond again. It's actually a luxury to see streets and shop windows and people in civilian clothing going about their business. Looks the same way to me, Harry, but we can't delay. We must be off to the President with the dispatches from the Army of Northern Virginia. But they did not hurry greatly. They were young, and it had been a long time since they had been in a city of 40,000 inhabitants, where the shop windows were brilliant to them, and nobody on the streets was shooting at anybody else. It was late July. The great heats were gone for the time at least, and they were brisk and elated. They paused a little while in Capitol Square and looked at the bell tower, rising like a spire from the crest of which alarms were rung then at the fine structure of st paul's church they intended to go into the state house now used as the confederate capital but that must wait until they reported to president davis they arrived at the modest building called the white house of the confederacy and after a short wait in the anteroom they were received by the president they saw a tall rather spare man dressed in a suit of home knit gray 
He received them without either warmth or coldness. Harry, although it was not the first time he had seen him, looked at him with intense curiosity. Davis, like Lincoln, was born in his own state, Kentucky. But like most other Kentuckians, he did not feel any enthusiasm over the President of the Confederacy. There was no magnetism. He felt the presence of intellect, but there was no inspiration in that arid presence. A man of oriental features was sitting near with a great bunch of papers in his hand. Mr. Davis did not introduce Harry and Dalton to him, and he remained silent while the President was asking questions of the messengers. But Harry watched him when he had a chance, interested strongly in that shrewd, able, eastern face, the descendant of an immemorial and intellectual race, the man who, while Secretary of State, was trying also to help carry the tremendous burden of Confederate finance. What was he thinking as Harry and Dalton answered the President's questions about the Army of Northern Virginia? You say that you left immediately after our army crossed the Potomac? asked the President. Yes, sir, replied Harry. General Meade could have attacked, but he remained nearly two days on our front without attempting to do so. A thin gray smile flitted over the face of the President of the Confederacy. General Meade was not beaten at Gettysburg, but I fancy he remembered it well enough. Harry glanced at Benjamin, but his oriental face was inscrutable. The lad wondered what was lurking at the back of that strong brain. He was shrewd enough himself to know that it was not always the generals on the battlefield who best understood the condition of a state at war, and often the man who held the purse was the one who measured it best of all. But Benjamin never said a word, nor did the expression of his face change a particle. The Army of Northern Virginia is safe, said the President and it will be able to repel all invasion of Virginia. General Lee gives a special mention of both of you in his letters, and you are not to return to him at once. You are to remain here a while on furlough, and if you will go to General Winder, he will assign you to quarters. Both Harry and Dalton were delighted, and although thanks were really due to General Lee, they thanked the President, who smiled dryly. Then they saluted and withdrew. The President and the Secretary of State going at once into earnest consultation over the papers Mr. Benjamin had brought. Harry felt that he had left an atmosphere of depression and said so, when they were outside in the bright sunshine. If you were trying to carry as much as Mr. Davis is carrying, you'd be depressed too, said Dalton. Maybe so, but let's forget it. We've got nothing to do for a few days but enjoy ourselves. General Winder is to give us quarters, but we're not to be under his command. What say you to a little trip through the capital? Good enough. Congress had adjourned for the day, but they went through the building, admiring particularly the Howden Washington, and then strolled again through the streets, which were so interesting and novel to them. Richmond was never gayer and brighter. They were sure that the hated Yankees could never come. For more than two years the Army of Northern Virginia had been an insuperable bar to their advance, and it would continue so. Harry suddenly lifted his cap as someone passed swiftly, and Dalton, glancing backward, saw a small vanishing figure. Who was it? he asked. The thin little old maid in black whom we saw on the train. She may have nodded to me when I bowed, but it was such a little nod that I'm not certain. 
I rather like your being polite to an insignificant old maid, Harry. I'd expect you, as a matter of course, to be polite to a young and pretty girl. Over-polite, probably. That'll do, George Dalton. I like you best when you're preaching least. Come, let's go into the hotel and hear what they're talking about. After the custom of the times, a large crowd was gathered in the spacious lobby of Richmond's chief hotel. Among them were the local celebrities in other things than war. Daniel, Bagby, Pegram, Randolph, and a half-dozen more, musicians, artists, poets, orators, and wits. People were quite democratic, and Harry and Dalton were free to draw their chairs near the edge of the group and listen. Pegram, the humorist, gave them a glance of approval when he noticed their uniforms, the deep tan of their faces, their honest eyes, and their compact, strong figures. End of chapter 9, part 1